I'm Rebecca, and we are Mama Bear Apologetics. We're just two gals talking about life's big questions from a biblical worldview. Because when it comes to the battle of ideas, we need to be able to say, mess with my kids and I will demolish your arguments. You mess, I demolish. Got it? Capiche? (laughs) (laughs) Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary, and normally I would have Rebecca with me, but she is working hard on a paper tonight. So I have my friend Elisa Childers here with me. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you. So for for those who have listened to some of the other Mama Bear podcasts, we did the podcast on um, Is the Progressive Gospel a Gospel at All? And I referenced a friend of mine who had brought my attention to the article on the trouble with Easter. That friend was Elisa Childers. And so since then, Elisa, it's like between you, me, and Natasha. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's been quite a ride. It's uh, there's been a lot of I don't know. How would you describe it with this discussion that's going back and forth? (laughs) Well, I think that it's it's really been God because I think that You know, my I'll tell a little bit about my story in a minute, but I came out of a progressive church situation several years ago, and it's been something that's been so much on my heart to help educate other Christians about what's going on in that movement and what do we need to be aware of. And so, you know, I had written a blog post, Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. And you had written uh, a post in response to an uh, of unfundamentalist parenting, I think, where it was a blog post about Easter and what we tell kids on Easter by a progressive Christian pastor. And, and then they kind of curiously came back the next week with a post about why your kids don't need apologetics. And then, of course, <laughs> you responded to that, and then Natasha responded to it as well. And so there have been some progressive podcasts about our articles and mm-hmm. and podcasts. And so um, it's just been an interesting sort of uh, thing that, that God's been doing in, I think, both worlds. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a collaborative effort. And so I, th- I we have done our best to stay respectful and have a respectful and engaging and meaningful dialogue about these issues. But the issues still really matter. So we're going to talk a little bit more. I loved what you wrote in your article on how to spot progressive Christianity. And so I think there's a lot of people who are still a little bit confused about some of the terminology and uh, would just like to know, well, I'll just say what today's podcast title is. Today's title is Progressive Christianity and Why You Need to Understand It. Because this is something that will definitely affect not only not only the, the, the mama bears out there, but their kids as well, because this is going to be something that they have um, that are exposed to and have access to. And the confusing thing is a lot of times the same words and terminology are used, but they have different meanings. And so this is something called the equivocation fallacy. It's when you use the same word in two different ways. Um, so like a, the classic example of this would be evolution that you'll see in most textbooks. It talks about evolution it says change over time but then you hear someone else talking about evolution and what their meaning is going from molecules all the way to man and so this idea of differing finch beaks versus going from molecules to man are two really different concepts but there's just one word for them right right. um we also see this i guess with the idea of love right now the word Mm -hmm. love when some people say love and when some people (laughs) say tolerance it means something very different than when other people say love and tolerance so 
being aware of some of this vocabulary is very important. In fact, there's a a quote by Voltaire that I like, uh, that the, this man in my small group that led our small group, uh, when John and I lived in Dallas, he used to say this all the time, that it's, if you wish to converse with me, first define your terms. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> it's very important, because what happens is you'll have people talking past one another, where they're using this word and you're using this word, but y'all are thinking separate things, and so you can't figure out, why do we never agree? Mm-hmm. So first off, we're going to talk about what is progressive Christianity, and we have to preface this with there's not like a handbook out there for progressive Christianity. It's not like all the progressive Christians have this handbook and it says this is what we believe. So we kind of have to cobble together based on people who are self-proclaimed progressive Christians and what they believe Mm -hmm. to see what is it that they actually believe. And so since this is an area you've studied, why won't you help us out with that? Yeah, well, in my experience with progressive Christianity, there is, it's like a spectrum. There is such vast beliefs that fall under that umbrella Mm -hmm. to the point that some people that are kind of in that progressive world don't even really understand that there is a bit of an organized movement going on. And so they, Mm -hmm. they almost misinterpret the term progressive Christian as a pejorative made up by, (laughs) you know, some hyper fundamentalist people that are just trying to insult them with this term. And it's actually not a pejorative. It's actually a thing. And um, but because there are so many different beliefs that fall under that, uh, the one thing I think if I had to just just nail it down to one thing, I would just say the word authority. Mm. And I think what it is, is that progressive Christians have shifted the authority for their faith from the Bible Mm -hmm. to their personal conscience. And And their personal uh, experience, experience, conscience, um, feelings, and all of those terms can, you know, be masked with phrases like Holy Spirit or. So whatever it is, it's subjective instead of objective. Exactly. It's a it's a subjective spiritual experience rather than an objective spiritual experience. Now, some progressive Christians might say, hey, wait a minute, you're not that's not right. But as we go on, I think I'll be able to make that point a little more clearly. So let's Mm -hmm. just look at some of uh, progressive, uh, prominent progressive Christian leaders and what they've said about uh, progressive Christianity. So the first one I'll start with is a guy named John Pavlovitz, and he has a blog, and he's very openly progressive, so it's not a pejorative. We're not saying, you nasty progressive. It's <laughs> it's what he calls himself. Okay. And um, so he has a blog post that maybe we can link, but it, it's, under, it's, it's his definition of what progressive Christianity is. And there's a lot of really good stuff in it. Like, he yeah. says a lot of things I would actually agree with. So what's the exact title of that? And, and we can, I can make sure to put it in the podcast notes. Yeah, it's called Explaining Progressive Christianity. And then in parentheses, it says, otherwise known as Christianity. And so, <laughs> yeah. And I think we probably would both agree that really, there really shouldn't be an adjective in front of Christianity. Yeah. That Christianity is just one thing. Uh, but he, he, he says some good stuff. He, he talks about, um, it's, it's about living in truth. It's about... Um, searching for truth. Um, it's about depth of study, authenticity of faith, and sincerity of prayers. And he says a lot of stuff I think we would all agree with, although, mm-hmm. back to that equivocation, we might be meaning different things by yeah. those terms. Yeah, but the, the search for truth, I find a lot of times, if someone focuses so much on the search for truth, it's because they have a tendency to be elevating the search over the destination. And right. the idea of, and this is something that I found back when I was in art school, is if you if you created a photograph that made people ask questions that was so much that was considered such higher form of art 
than creating a piece that made a statement. It's like mm-hmm. just creating questions for some reason. That's this whole postmodern, you know, idol that we have. Questions right. are like the epitome of what we can have. And there's almost a fear of answers in the progressive world. It's like we want to mm-hmm. come up with the best question and ask all these questions. But and I said this in in one of my podcasts. It's I hear this from the progressive church all the time. Is like, why are you so afraid of questions? And to that, I want to say, well, why are you so afraid of answers? You know, because <laughs> it's kind <laughs> Such of a good answer. You know, but so so John Pavlovitz he says this, which I th- think is very interesting. He says we believe that social justice is the heart of the gospel. So he just comes right out and says that good works are really what the gospel is. Now, Mm. we would all agree that good works are an outworking of our faith. If you are not doing good works as a Christian, that's probably an indication that there's not a lot of spiritual life going on in you. Yes. Um, But that isn't the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is, you know, Christ crucified and resurrected to save us from our sins. And because of that, we have, you know, the, the works, It's you know, but... It's like this, it's the story of reality. It's, as yeah. Greg Kukul says, it's, it's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's mm-hmm. the story of reality. That's the biblical narrative of the story. That's the heart of the gospel. Yeah. And out of that is going to flow. I mean, Christians have done some of the m- most amazing social justice in the his- all throughout history. So, I mean, we're not saying social justice is bad or that you shouldn't do social justice. But that isn't the heart of the gospel. It's kind of the idea of thinking that I can put fruit on a tree and that's going to make the tree alive instead of the idea that because a tree is alive, it produces fruit. It's like otherwise all you have is a Christmas tree, you know, with putting ornaments all around it. That doesn't make it living. And so if we're it's something where it's good to have fruit and that's a good example or evidence of a thriving faith. But that is not the faith itself. It has to be produced by something. That's great. I love that analogy. Uh, He goes on to say progressive Christianity is about not apologizing for what we become as we live this life. I'm not sure entirely what he means by that. That's confusing. (laughs) I know. And openly engage the faith we grew up with. There There are, I just want to say there are some things you need to apologize for about yourself. There's things I need to apologize. There's things we all need to apologize. Like sin? (laughs) Yeah, like sin. You know, the fact that I can sometimes be short with my husband or I can... Yeah, Yeah. this whole you're perfect just the way you are, I'm like, yeah, it's not biblical. Yeah. He says, there are no sacred cows, only the relentless sacred search for truth. He says, tradition, dogma. So one might say the search for truth is his sacred cow. Yeah. But of course, there's no sacred cows. Yeah, the only sacred cow is no sacred cows, but that is still a sacred cow. So mama bears, this is what we call a self-refuting statement. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, he says, tradition dogma and doctrine are all fair game because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity and Mm -hmm. as such are all equally vulnerable to the prejudices fears and biases of those it touched so he's essentially saying um and i i know this from the progressive world that he's not just talking about you and me he's Mm -hmm. talking about paul and and john and peter that what they received passed through their flawed hands and so we Mm. have to take into account their prejudices their fears and their biases and then we look at it and sort of make a judgment about what they were saying you know based on what we know now and the the moral evolution that we've you know come to at this point and that to me is really the heart of progressive Christians that I've encountered and that I've experienced and I read the books I read the blogs I really try to stay current with what's going on in that movement and that world Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a very spot-on definition 
of what it is. So again, back to the authority thing, he's basically removing biblical authority with yeah. that statement. Tradition. Now listen, we all debate theology. I mean, you and I probably don't agree on every finer point of theology, but yeah. tradition, dogma, doctrine, he's talking about like the essential doctrines as well. Resurrection yeah. of Jesus, uh, deity of Jesus, Trinity. I mean, I'm talking essential things. He's saying, mm-hmm. you know, we have to take a look at that and decide what we think about those things. And uh, Does which, he claim to believe in inerrancy, just out of curiosity? I don't think so. I, okay. I don't think he does. I don't think he's one of those guys that do. Some that do is like Matthew Vines, I think, still mm-hmm. says that he affirms uh, inerrancy and inspiration. Uh, not many of them do, from mm-hmm. my experience, but some do. But they do mean something really different from what we would mean yeah. when we use that word. Yeah, I think you were talking about the, a church that you went to that they said they believed in inspiration. But then when you kind of pushed the pastor a little bit, he meant, oh, I mean, you know, it's inspired like a, a sermon can be inspired. And, it, you know, right. I don't think we're meaning the same thing by inspiration. That would right. be our equivocation fallacy again. Absolutely. And and on that note, Brian McLaren, who's a very prominent leader in the progressive uh, movement, when he defines inspiration, and this is from his book, A New Kind of Christianity, where he's talking about biblical inspiration. And he says this, I'm recommending we read the Bible as an inspired library. This inspired library preserves, presents, and inspires an ongoing vigorous conversation with and about God, a living and vital civil argument into which we are all invited and through which God is revealed. So mm-hmm. he's defining inspiration. I mean, we would agree that the Bible is an inspired library. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's not just one book. It's a collection of books that have different genres and cultural contexts. But it is a final authority in our lives mm-hmm. where he's, he's saying it's presenting, it's beginning this conversation that we're continuing on now. And he yeah. goes on to say uh, later in his book, He says, scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. Mm. As humanity, I'm sorry, as human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in scripture like fossils in layers of sediment. So essentially what he's saying here is that what Paul said, what Peter said, what John wrote in their gospels Mm -hmm. is that was their best understanding of God with what they had to work with. Yeah. Uh, with the, you know, we, we know more from science now we know more from uh, philosophy now and, and from the limited place they were at, that was their best understanding. So we can then look at that like a fossil and examine it and say, mm-hmm. okay, well now we know this. So we can reject this or we can disagree with Paul here because he just yeah. didn't get this yet, which really is a denial of inerrancy and inspiration both. Yeah, so I, first off, I'd like to just mention just the word inspiration because, or to, for to say that scripture is inspired, because we hear inspiration and we think of like, you know, these like pithy Pinterest quotes that make me feel inspired. And that's mm. not what we're talking about when we say inspiration. Although I kind of get the feeling that that's what he means by inspiration. Of It's like this warm, fuzzy feeling mm. where I'm like, you know, yeah. not that's not what we mean. By inspired, we're talking uh, about the scripture that says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and, you know, in all things. So this idea of God breathed, meaning this is coming directly down through God. So there's there's kind of this dichotomy with inspiration where it is God breathed, but it is still acting through humans. So you're going to see personalities, you're going to see mannerisms, you're going to see perspectives, mm-hmm. but 
the ideas that are presented are from God. And so if you go to the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, which we'll have a link to that in the podcast notes, um, you can kind of read more about what is the our, our understanding of inspiration and inerrancy as best we understand it. So yeah, I just want to say that's how we define it versus inspiration as in you know, warm, fuzzy feelings. Mm-hmm. And just also the idea of this also brings us up the idea of that I see sometimes when people do see the word progressive as being a pejorative and they don't like having that label on them. One of the things that they do to defend themselves against that label is they seem to mistake progressive theology for progressive faith. So they start saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, we're, we're, growing and involving human beings. I'm not the same as I was when I was a child. My understanding of God should be different. And that's a progressive faith because we are going to grow. We are going to develop. If you are the, if your Christianity is exactly the same today as it was last year, then there is something wrong. You are not growing in your yeah. faith. However, progressive theology, the idea of what our faith is grounded in, the foundation of our faith, that's something that there's certain things that should not change. Right. And so I would say that would be a big misnomer. Like, here, here's a quote from uh, one the original the original blog that started this whole ordeal. So here's here's a quote from kind of one of the articles that started this whole thing. It says, "Our faith is a dynamic experience that shifts and evolves for us, and especially for a child growing leaps and bounds in their development. We cannot capture that experience and box it into a set of propositions to memorize and defend that limits and denies the realities of the human experience." So notice we're already setting up this false dichotomy between propositions and doctrine mm-hmm. versus faith and experience. Well, it's interesting, if, too, that she said taking the experience and boxing that into a set of doctrines, mm, which is not what what Christianity is. It's actually based on objective no. truth that's outside of us. It's not yeah. like we're taking someone's like one person's experience and saying okay we're going to live by their truth for the, you know we're, we're taking objective truths about god that are eternal and living by those and then of course like you said we grow and progress in mm-hmm. our faith but the message doesn't progress the message is the same jesus the yeah. same yesterday today and forever mm-hmm. and our understanding should be developing in nuance but it shouldn't be changing in its essence unless we were just wrong on something and we should have a standard by which we can tell have i been wrong on this and that all goes back to scripture but if you just count scripture as being the standard you can basically make your christian faith be whatever you want there's no way to judge it yeah you can make the bible say whatever you want it to say which is really yeah which is why you know as we were talking before i think you brought up it's really important to understand the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. Yes. Uh, because I think we're seeing even a church culture, even in conservative orthodox situations where we're really not teaching theology anymore. We're not teaching mm-hmm. any kind of systematic approach to the Bible. So people are kind of picking and choosing and saying, oh, I like this verse from Second Kings and I'm going to apply that to my life. And you not worry about what it meant to the original audience, yeah. you know, and, and that's a dangerous thing because then you end up, you can end up not always, but you can end up in a progressive kind of situation if you're not viewing the Bible as a whole unit. You can end up basically anywhere if you're not viewing the Bible as a whole unit. So just just for the for the listeners, the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. So biblical theology is kind of looking at just one 
piece of the Bible, just this one passage, just this one verse, and doing really extensive study. And we need to do that. But systematic theology is saying, how does this compare? What, is, what does the Bible say about this, this um, topic from beginning to end? And how do all the different verses come together? So if you think about it like a doctor, in medical school, they teach you about all the different parts of the body. And so uh, you don't learn about the liver and separate from the circulatory system and separate from the immune system. However, there are doctors that specialize in those one organs, and that is important, but it has to be interpreted in light of how the rest of the body works because it's yeah. those two things are not going to be in conflict. However, sometimes it will appear that two things are in conflict, but really you just have to be able to interpret them based on the other verses. So anyway, that's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. And one of the books that I was reading for Biola this semester was talking about how if you just relied on biblical theology with just looking at specific verses, that's how we have people that kind of go off in all sorts of wacky directions because they'll take they'll have some verse that then becomes like, oh, this is what I, you know, my my verse for everything. And they kind of go off in the wrong direction because they're not using the rest of the Bible to interpret that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those are, do, do you have any more quotes from their progressive leaders? I think that's all I had. In, in doing some of the research for this podcast, we came across something that was called the Center for Progressive Christianity. And that's actually, it was started in 1994, and it actually has now changed to just progressivechristianity.org. And so this is kind of the longest standing progressive Christian um, organiz- well, I'm not the longest standing. There might be another one, but the longest formal standing one, I would say, yeah. that we have. And they have, in their statement, eight things that they say define progressive Christianity. Should we go over those? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I've got it up here. So uh, it says, by, by calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean we are Christians who... And the number one is believe that following the path and teachings of Jesus can lead to an awareness and experience of the sacred and the oneness and unity of all life. So so basically there's sort of this presupposition or this assumption they're beginning with that this new age mysticism is mm-hmm. is actually the the truth about reality and Jesus can actually lead you there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Their list is so like very new agey. There, I, there might be some progressive Christian, pro- progressive Christians that would read that and say that's that's a little too much for us. But I think it's still worth noting that this is how they define. Well, and themselves. this would be the this would definitely be the far end of the ex- of the spectrum, and mm-hmm. uh, a, a vast majority of progressive Christians would not look at this and say, "Yeah, that's what I believe." But mm-hmm. I do know many that would affirm all these eight points as well so this is not just something that's just way out there in the stratosphere this this really is something so number two uh we affirm that the teachings of jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and the oneness of life and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom in our spiritual journey (laughs) it's just one of the ways so yeah that's such an insult to the cross of christ it's like you know he could have not died a barbaric death, but, you know, might as well throw in one more way to be saved there. Well, and that brings up an important point about the progressive church is, is very typical within the progressive church. Again, not all, but mm-hmm. but a good chunk of the progressive church denies the idea of blood atonement. Mm. Um, this Rabel teaches that definitely I'd say most of them would deny substitutionary atonement, but yeah. uh, many would also deny that Jesus died for our sins, that his blood was shed for our sins, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to pay the penalty for our sins. 
And so that that is something I think is very common, which really reduces the cross to just this really strange, unnecessary thing yeah. that that love demanded somehow. Like that in, um, you know, the writer of the shack, uh, William Paul Young, his new book, he comes out with these what he says are lies that we believe about God, and one of the yeah. lies is that Jesus died for our sins, and and it's like the idea that that God surrendered to us or submitted to our, our desire for blood. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted our pound of flesh. So God said, here, have my son. If you must have blood, have my son. Yeah. And which really makes God impotent, p- powerless and sort of weak. Like, okay. If he's you the, he's the parent that it, gave into the, the temper tantrum kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've still not found a really clear definition of why Jesus died. If, yeah. if it wasn't for our sins or, or, I mean, some would say it was just like a bloodthirsty mob that killed him. And yeah. I don't know if they would just say God was powerless to stop it or what. I don't know. But, but yeah. that he submitted to that in some way. It's, it's sort it, of a strange. Yeah. And it directly contradicts. I just want to point out first. I think it's first Corinthians. Is it first Corinthians 15 or second Corinthians 15? Are you I think about it's the, the creed. Yeah, that's First Corinthians. First right? Corinthians fifteen, yeah. Yeah, it directly like First Corinthians. If you really want to know what Orthodox Christianity teaches, yeah. look at First Corinthians fifteen. Yeah, because there's really just one essential if you really think about it. Yeah, <laughs> that Jesus died for my sins. I'm a sinner. Uh-huh. I'm a sinner, and Jesus is my Savior. That's like the yeah. all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then you you branch out from there, and then there's things that that you that are true and have to be true for that one essential to even be true. So you, you mm-hmm. can't really deny that stuff outside of that, but that's that's probably another conversation. But <laughs> <laughs> So number three is to seek community that is inclusive of all people, including but not limited to conventional Christians and questioning skeptics, believers and agnostics, women and men, those of all sexual orientation and gender identities, and those of all classes and abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, which is that's tricky language too, because seek community yeah. that is inclusive. What does that mean? Like, I mean, are we talking about reaching out and loving our neighbors? Then I'm with you. Yeah. Um, you know, but are we talking about a church situation and and leadership and you know that all gets kind of muddy. Yeah. Um, number four, know that the way we behave toward one another is the fullest of expression of what we believe. Okay. I <laughs> could not agree with that one more. Yeah. Like. I, that, I remember when I read that, I was like, okay, I'm totally on board with number four. And one of the things that it's like, because if we, there are, oh God, there are so many Christians who they know that our highest ideal is to love and yet they act so mm-hmm. prideful and hateful towards people that they see as being in the out group that I just sit there and smack yeah. my forehead and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're the reason why people reject Christianity. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. I would also point out for this one that if you act like sin isn't really that big of a deal that also belies your belief that sin really isn't that big of a deal no that's um, true so anyway yeah that's just sort of a good wisdom principle i wouldn't necessarily call that a, a tenet of the faith you know but yeah. it's, it's a good wisdom principle yeah i would agree with that uh, number five uh, number five find grace in the search for understanding and believe there is more value in questioning than in absolute so we, we mm-hmm. talked about that before yeah. number six strive for peace and justice among all people I just have to point out that Jesus himself said, and this isn't like being watered down through fallible human beings. This was Jesus himself saying that I did not come to bring peace, but the Mm -hmm. sword. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there was other times when Jesus absolutely called for unity and called for peace. Mm -hmm. But there are, I mean, 
this is one of those things where someone might call it a contradiction where I say, you know, it's just like there's a time and a place. There's some instances where we're called to unity and peace, and there are some instances where we are not called to unity and peace. We're called uh, to divide. I mean, just the idea of sanctification from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The, the phrase itself, the word itself, means to be set apart. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of having unity with the world, that's, that's not a biblical concept. Right. Light can't fellowship with darkness. And it's interesting, too, because I just the other day was just looking through all of the, the things, the language Jesus used mm-hmm. uh, toward people. And I, I mean, Jesus was one of the most divisive people who has ever walked this earth. <laughs> I mean, if you just, if you make a list of the name of just the things he called people, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, blind guides, uh, serpents, sinners, you know, I mean, and that's just a few. There's like just a whole list I read of all of these, these labels, you know, everybody's the progressive church is so against labeling, but like, man, they must not like Jesus very much because he labeled (laughs) people all over the place. You know, he called a spade a spade pretty fast. He really did. Um, So yeah, so he was he was very divisive. um, Mm -hmm. But he wanted unity among his his church among his true church. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, you you know, you read the, the Gospels, you read most of the epistles, like I've been reading, studying Jude, um, the whole book is about spotting false teachers and mm. getting that junk out of the church. Yeah. You know, not tolerating false doctrine. Mm. Uh, almost every epistle at least mentions that. Yeah. And some are, high, are very focused on it. Yeah. Um, so this idea that it's, you know, everything's all inclusive. Jesus wasn't all inclusive. No, he just he wasn't. wasn't. All right. Number seven, strive to protect and restore the integrity of our earth. I mean, I'm not sure that's a tenet of the faith. It might be a good idea, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, we're not going to say we're against that, but I'm not going to say that's like part of salvation. I mean, we are called to be good stewards. I mean, in Genesis, that was our first job to be good stewards of the earth. So sure. Sure. Um, Number eight, commit to a path of lifelong learning, compassion, and selfless love. Yeah, I I mean, I can can go with that one too. I'll go with that. I mean, again, though, it's not what's going to save you. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what's going to save you. But also I would say lifelong learning has to assume that you're arriving at answers. This idea that learning is only questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think I would ever want to see a doctor that's like, I've never come to any conclusion. I just, (laughs) I just ask questions. I'm like, yeah, I think I want a different doctor. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good analogy too. Yeah. And lawyer. I'd probably want a different lawyer too. (laughs) Exactly. So, okay. So this is, you know, this is kind of like a very large, long overview of what progressive Christianity is. So why don't you tell your story a little bit of how how this kind of became a pet topic of yours? Yeah, well, going back to when I was a very young girl, you know, I, I was one of those kids that asked Jesus into my heart when I was five. <laughs> you know, that was the best language I had yeah. at the time. And my mom came into the living room and asked if I wanted to pray. And I remember being kind of puzzled by that because I already knew God. I already felt close to Jesus and, but I prayed and I just had a deep love for God and the Bible. And so even at nine and 10 years old, uh, I would read and study the Bible. I remember just highlighting all the Proverbs (laughs) and just, just really knowing that this book was what corrects me, teaches me. It's where I learn about God. And I had a really strong relationship with God uh, all my life. Now, it wasn't always mm-hmm. perfect. I've had my, my times of, of doubt. I've had my times of doing my mm-hmm. own thing and 
you know, having to repent and come back. But God has been so faithful my whole life, and I've just always loved him. But the so so experiencing as a young child a lot of great ministry. My, my parents had us down working soup lines at the Fred Jordan Mission mm. in L.A. every weekend. So at 10 years old, I was rubbing elbows with the homeless and prostitutes, and that was just a regular part of my life. So I saw the outworking of Christianity as a really beautiful yeah. thing. You know, I wasn't raised in a hyper-liberal or hyper-conservative type of situation. And uh, I just, I think it was just, it was the real thing. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't even theologically perfect, but it was yeah. the real thing. It was, it was Jesus. And, and so that part of my faith was really strong. So I didn't have a blind faith. My faith wasn't just, you know, oh, I'm just doing what I was yeah. told. It, it was a deep faith and it was a true faith, but it was an intellectually weak and untested mm. faith. And I had never heard any of the sophisticated intellectual objections to Christianity until I was an adult. And so basically I was in the music business for a while and then I was home. I had had uh, my baby, my first baby, and I was leading worship at a few churches here and there, but had pretty much come off the road and was kind of doing the the home life domestic Mm -hmm. thing. And uh, I was invited to lead worship at a church in town that was just marketed as an evangelical non-denominational church in Tennessee here. And my husband and I fell in love with this church. We loved the pastor and the people. There was a really great sense of mm-hmm. community, uh, a lot of love, uh, really loving people with very genuine hearts for yeah. compassion. And the pastor was an intellectual, and I'd never really been exposed to a really intellectual pastor before, and I just loved it, and I loved how he thought outside the box. And and uh, there, you know, there would be something I would hear from time to time and kind of you know, shake my head a little bit and go, what? what? <laughs> but assuming, I was assuming that he and I were operating from the same mm-hmm. fundamentals. And so language he was using, I would apply it over those fundamentals and go, oh, well, that's probably yeah. what he means, you know. But it was about a year into it that uh, I was invited by the pastor to be a part of this sort of inner circle study group that I thought was just kind of like going to be a Bible yeah. study and ministry training, that kind of thing. But it was in the context of this class, and there was about 15 of us in the class, that he revealed that he was actually an agnostic. Yeah, and um, that the things that he was teaching on Sunday morning, because at the time he was still giving fairly orthodox sermons mm-hmm. on Sunday mornings, uh, but that, that that's really not where he's at anymore. And so he's evolved in his beliefs and progressed, and he even went through the fundamentals of the faith and kind of said which ones he affirms and which ones he doesn't think are important and which ones... Uh, he doesn't affirm at all. And I was really confused. And, and uh, so, you know, we had some conversations and I, I lasted in the class for probably three or four months. But over the course of that three or four months, man, just everything I believed about Christianity mm-hmm. and God and the Bible was, I mean, I was hearing things like, you know, Matthew probably didn't even write that gospel. I'd never heard any of these things, you know, Matthew probably didn't even write the book of Matthew. And, um, you know, Paul was wrong about this. And, um, you know, even Calvin didn't take the Bible literally. And I just all these concepts that I had never really thought through before. And so it was interesting because I didn't know a lot of things outside the Bible, but I knew the Bible fairly well because I'd studied it my whole life. So when he, when he would take something in scripture out of context, that's when I felt like I was on an even Mm -hmm. playing field and I could kind of go, wait a second, if he said that about the Bible, maybe he wasn't right about Calvin or maybe he wasn't right about, you know, what this person said or, or affirmed. And, um, 
basically my husband and I had to get out. We had to, we had to get out of the church because it was just, oh man, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's, it's such an easy thing to Mm -hmm. fall into. It's, it's so attractive and it makes you in a way feel free. You almost feel this freedom of like, oh my gosh, all my life I felt like I was a sinner. All my life I felt like God is mad at me. And, and you know, a lot of people did grow up in a situation where they were taught that, that God's just mad at you and, you know, and they didn't really under, get to understand the loving father yeah. part of God. And so this becomes very attractive to that kind of um, person. But, you know, there is a certain feeling of freedom mm-hmm. and it feels really close to mm. the real thing. It feels really close. But with that freedom, it's almost like they've just cast off everything, all restraint in in regards to truth and doctrine. And I was kind of like, whoa. And so um, I've watched so many people go down this road and some people even lose their faith altogether. And some sort of adopt just a a lifeless faith that that sort of just passes as a authentic faith. But, you know, again, these words have (laughs) You know, we all mean something different. But um, yeah, so that's coming out of that. It really sent me into a time of profound Mm -hmm. doubt where I was I was really doubting everything I'd ever believed. And that's when I discovered apologetics and theology and church history. And I started studying and realizing, oh, okay, wait, there are answers to these things, you know, because I'm I'm the kind of person that I like questions, but I really want answers. I want to know, you know, because I mean, and, and that's the thing, too, is just in this progressive world, this idea that answers are immature trying or having to have your answers is is a a sign of immaturity I mean if we apply that to mathematics (laughs) you know imagine if somebody said you know I've come to the point of maturity in my life where I realize that I don't need to be so dogmatic about two plus two I mean if it wants if you want to make it equal five that's fine if you you know I don't think there's anybody that would say that's a sign of maturity I think they would make that as a sign of of regression not progression so um, that was just a little aside. But yeah, so it's just become, it's, it's on my heart because I have a love for progressive Christians. I feel like I know where they're mm-hmm. coming from. And there's, there's some good things about progressive Christianity. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of compassion, mm-hmm. a lot of love. There, there, there seems to be a motivation of really wanting to help yeah. people and, and to, to reach the underdog, the person that's being mistreated. And that's that a is a good thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that kind of addresses like, where do they get it right? That there are a lot of things I think that they are doing a lot better than maybe some of the just traditional or Orthodox uh, Christian churches in their commitment to, um, I don't like using the word social justice because it has so much baggage, but if we want to just take right. it back to scriptural, you know, James, the looking after the orphan and widow, that this is supposed to be part mm-hmm. of our, of the outcroppings of our faith, that they, they really do a good part of that. And just the idea of calling in the ones that have been abandoned and rejected, but it's still supposed mm-hmm. to be calling them to something um, and sp- right. calling them to an Orthodox Christianity and to a family that is based on something and not just uh, this, you know, let's, let's all sing Kumbaya and, be together. So there are a lot of ways that they really do have it right. However, you did a really good job in that article that you had recently on how to spot if your church is headed in this progressive direction. And we don't have a ton of time here, but do you want to go over maybe some of your main points for how to spot a progressive Christian church? 
Yeah, and a lot of it's in language. So I'll read some of the comments you might hear. Uh, you know, if you hear a pastor saying these things or someone in the church or a group leader, you know, this is what where your ears should <laughs> perk up and your, your you know, the, the road flare should be yep. waving here. Uh, but the first point is, you know, if there's a lowered view of the Bible and you might hear them say even like, you know, I love this book. This book is, is sacred to me and I esteem it highly. But you have to listen for language like when now there is a human element to the Mm -hmm. Bible, but you'll hear them say over and over again, it's a human Mm -hmm. book. You'll hear that term a lot. Um, Or if there's any disagreement with like an apostle on something, (laughs) you know, or or even language that's like the Bible contains the word of God rather than it is the word of God. Um, is something to kind of look for, which is sort of a from Karl Barth in the 40s. But number two, feelings are emphasized over facts. This is a huge mm. one because, again, it's about authority. The authority is shifted from the Bible, from objective mm-hmm. truth to my personal experience and my, my personal conscience. So you might hear people say, that Bible verse doesn't resonate with me. Or um, I just can't believe Jesus would send anyone to hell. You know, things like, I don't believe this, or this doesn't feel right, so therefore it must not <laughs> be true. Uh, number three, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. And again, here we're not talking about whether or not you should speak in tongues yeah. or how exactly the mechanism of uh, predestination <laughs> works. We're talking about essential Christian doctrines that we identified before the resurrection of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the sinless life mm-hmm. of Jesus, uh, you know, blood atonement of Jesus. So you might hear something like from the blog post that you originally responded to, the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be factual to oh, speak God, truth. that made me cringe. You know, we can find a good moral lesson in there. And the question um, that, you know, of course, the, tr- the question that you're supposed to ask your kids, have you ever heard of a myth that had a good story? How could the story yeah. of Jesus be like that? Oh, my gosh. I just. Wink, <laughs> wink. <laughs> you know? So uh, number four, historic terms are redefined. And we talked about this with like inerrancy and inspiration and how those things uh, you know, they change the definition of those things. So you might hear them say, yeah, I believe the Bible's authoritative, but we've just been misunderstanding it for the first 2000 years of yeah. church history. You know, like all of a sudden we understand it now, but it's interesting though, that if you have a position on something that is that they'll say, oh, well that, that position, like blood, like this penal substitutionary atonement, they'll say, well, that wasn't even a thing until Anselm in the mm-hmm. middle ages, but then they'll try to redefine, uh, like sexual ethics and that started like in the 50s. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, they'll use the argument when it's convenient. Or they get hung up on the fact that that phrase isn't in the Bible, but the concept was in the Bible from the very beginning. Just because someone gave it a formal name later doesn't mean that this is a new right. belief. Well, and most scholars, even I'm talking about atheist scholars who are gay themselves, mm-hmm. will tell you that absolutely that's what Paul meant when he used the word homosexuality yeah. you know that the oh, there's really just one group of scholars that disagree with that and that's just this recent sort of progressive yeah. since that's the 50s, a whole really other podcast <laughs> yeah so number five the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice and i think we yeah. covered that but you'll hear things like you know sin doesn't separate us from god we're made in his image and we, he called us good so mm-hmm. we're good you know god didn't really require a sacrifice for sin we don't really need to preach the gospel we just need to show love and things yeah. like that uh sort of go along with with mm-hmm. that point so you know and they can be very subtle they can be mixed with a lot yeah. of truth it can be very persuasive and enticing but carried out to its logical end i really believe that progressive christianity is an assault on the foundational framework of christianity yeah and it, it really disarms it of its saving yeah. power. And I think, and in, 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 in we'll wrap up with this, the idea, some of the ideas behind progressive Christianity 
can kind of almost be traced back to one singular thought, which is the first one that you listed, the idea of a lowered view of the Bible. And now, so Mm -hmm. I kind of compare this to, there's a, you know, of course I have to turn everything into a biological analogy, but this is why I love studying biology is because it's like, to me, it it helped me understand theology better. There's a a system in the body, um, this protein, it's called P53. And so P53 is a protein and one of its functions is as a proofreader in the cell cycle. So basically, once your 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 cell's going to divide, it has to duplicate the DNA. When it duplicates the DNA, it splits apart, and then it kind of fills in the other side, so you have two identical copies. Well, then you have this proofreader that goes through and actually spell checks every single um, base to make sure that this is the correct base. Well, the irony about this is that P53 is, since it's a protein, it is coded for in the DNA. So... What happens is if you get a mutation, because basically every time your cells duplicate, you're always going to get little mutations, and usually the P53 will catch it and fix it before it goes through the cell division. If you get a mutation, an accidental mutation in the code that codes for P53, basically this is present in a lot of cancers, because cancer is basically when a cell starts duplicating and starts having all sorts of mutations. If you take out the proofreader, Basic, you can Mm. insert any error in there that you want. And so this is why they find this in so many of the cancers. I think there's an analogy in the spiritual realm for P53 when you take away the idea of inerrancy because inerrancy is the way that we are supposed to kind of, it's like a spell check for our life of, am I I adhering to the standard here that was set before me? And once Mm -hmm. I throw that out, I can import anything into Christianity. And I've seen people go from, being very orthodox, you know, Bible-believing Christians all the way to completely off the rails. And it all started Mm. from when they got rid of inerrancy and the idea that this is just Mm. a human book. And I would also like to point out that in cancer, you have something called poorly differentiated and well-differentiated. And poorly differentiated, it sounds like you don't want that, but actually poorly differentiated is better because when you have cells that are duplicating out of control, this this is cancer, if they still kind of look like the cells that they started at, like say that we have liver cancer, if you have a, a cancer cell in the liver, they can actually take that cancer cell and say, how close to a liver cell does this look like it is? If it mm. still kind of looks pretty close, it's poorly differentiated, it's hard to tell the difference between the liver cell and the cancerous liver cell, the cancer is you know, not quite as bad. If it's well differentiated, mean like we've got a liver cell here and then we have this cell that was here in the liver and it doesn't look anything like the liver cell, that's bad news right there. That tells you that you have so many mm. mutations that it's like this amorphous cell that you can't even tell what it is. We also see that. That's why we have so many varieties of progressive Christianity is because it's almost like how mm. far away have they gotten from Orthodox Christianity? You can have ones that are poorly differentiated that this progressive Christian church looks real similar to the Orthodox Christian church. But since they've mm-hmm. lost their spell checker of scripture mm. being inerrant, you don't know where they're going to end up. And that's why even though we can find things in them that we can affirm, at the same time, we have to warn to say that this, this is, I don't even know if you can call it a denomination, it's gotten rid of its ability to really define truth. And so that's not something yeah. that you want to be a part of. Yeah. Wow. That is a great analogy. I love <laughs> that. It's really Hopefully true. people were able to follow that. I know I'm a bit of a science nerd, but you know what? I no, found I, it. That was okay. great. Well, so I think we're, we're kind of over time here. So um, would you like to pray for our mama bears as we, as we 
say goodnight? Yeah. Well, Father, we come to you and ask in Jesus' name that um, whatever we've said here that's of you would just ring true in people's hearts and whatever, if there's anything of the flesh or anything that um, isn't truthful or accurate, Lord, that it would just, that people would be able to use their discernment and just chew and spit <laughs> as we talked about. And uh, I just pray for every person that's listening to this, Lord, that, that our hearts would come through and that you would give these mama bears discernment, Lord, discernment to to see through uh, aberrations of the gospel, that they would be able to spot false gospels wherever they are, whether it's in the progressive church or anywhere else. And I pray that the faith of every person listening would be strengthened, that their hearts would be encouraged, and that these mama bears would be able to have another uh, just thing in their in their arsenal to to help protect their kids uh, against false teachings and to be able to be a light to their children and their families and their mm-hmm. communities thank you for this podcast bless hillary and rebecca and it's in jesus name we pray amen, amen. this has been a mama bear apologetics recording to learn more about mama bear apologetics please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com Have you been stumped by your kids already? Or maybe you have a nagging question of your own that you think would make a good podcast. Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we will do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, mama bears. We are all in this together. guys, it's Hillary, and I just have a quick disclaimer. After listening to the podcast, I realized that I misspoke on P53, so the analogy itself is still completely intact. However, P53, while it is a vital protein acting as a tumor suppressor, it's actually activated when DNA has undergone damage, not during typos in the replication process, so it stops the cell from going through the full cycle if there's damaged DNA. However, there is a DNA spell checker mechanism called the MMR or the DNA mismatch repair, MMR mismatch repair. So that does exist. And I just wanted to correct that before we got the podcast out without having to go and re-record that entire section just to clear up any misunderstandings.